the children's lesson. I thought that was great to help reinforce the lessons, but not only help the parents as far as teaching and talking about the lessons at home and reinforcing the things that God had revealed through that particular Bible story. And so I'm going to carry on with that theme this week. So we see here Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon the Great. So I hope to add a little depth, dig a little deeper, but reinforce the same exact lessons that the children were learning in their classes. So if you'll come with me first off, because we'll be digging into the scriptures, going to several different places, to Jeremiah chapter 19. Before we get into the plight of Judah uh, in these particular circumstances, we see in chapter 18, and this is verse 4, the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked, reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then it says that the word of the Lord came to me. So then Jeremiah, revealing what the Lord had said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, if it does evil, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways in your deeds. They would need to understand that they are the clay. But when we see, especially through the prophets, and not just Jerusalem, not just Judah, but even in the foreign nations, there's this theme of pride and haughtiness and the way that they would transgress God's ways and lift up their own ways. And then you'll see in Nebuchadnezzar, these things certainly come to pass. Chapter 19, though, we see more specifically the plight that's going to come upon Judah. Verse 3, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings into it other gods whom they neither, knew, neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. And then he goes on to speak of how he will void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. See, they neglect God's word, determining their own plans that they would fall by the sword, that their dead bodies would be food to the birds, that he would make the city a horror, and he even goes on to say that he will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor. 
And in verse 11, I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel. They are the clay. We are the clay. We may say that we're not the clay. We may question God. We may act like he's not all powerful. But God will humble those who have such a mind and will act in such a way because the fact of the matter, the truth of the matter is we are the clay. Now in chapter 20, we see that Pasher, the priest, who also held another office as chief officer in the house of the Lord, did not like what Jeremiah had to say and beat him because of it and put him in the stocks. But then in the next day when Jeremiah was released, it says, I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. So now we see specificity in terms of this judgment. It will be Babylon that God will use to judge Judah. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains, all its prized belongings, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. They will be held to consequence for the lies for which they told. But even within this, God using Babylon as the rod of his judgment against Judah, when the Jews did go into captivity, God is still using Babylon in regard to judging even other nations. You come with me into Ezekiel chapter 29. This particular speaks of Tyre. But as we'll see here shortly, he used Babylon to judge many nations. And then we'll look back to see what was said of Babylon even before all these things came to pass. And then as we come to Daniel 4, just like the young children did in Bible class, we'll see that God is sovereign. And he is who rules over the kingdom of men. And that if we allow ourselves to become puffed up and think that we are, uh, we're the ones in charge, we're the ones making the plans, then we're foolish. We're foolish. In chapter 29, it says, verse 17, In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is Ezekiel, remember. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. And then in verse 21, we see a, a little piece where power and authority would be returned to the house of Israel in the future. They will not be destroyed entirely. As we know, there will be a remnant. So even while Judah was in captivity, Babylon is still being used by God to do his work. We see in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, there had been a period of time that had been set apart. These 70 years with which God would allow them to accomplish these things. But then they would be judged for their attitude. 
for the things that they did not give God credit for, as we'll see Isaiah reveals here shortly. But it says specifically, as it read on the screen, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then it goes on towards the end of the chapter to just list all these different places and peoples that God will give into the hand of the king of Babylon, which will make his nation a great nation. And we see verse 26, all the kings of the north far and near one after another and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. So you could put your eyes through it. You see Egypt and the mixed tribes among them, Uz and the Philistines, and you see the sons of Ammon, Edom, Moab, Tyre, Sidon, coastland across the sea, these others are the corners of the hair, kings of Arabia, the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, Elam, Media, kings of the north. He would give all of them into the hands of the king of Babylon and create and allow a great nation that Nebuchadnezzar would rule over, but for only that period in which he determined, those 70 years, 606 to 536 B.C. But then what fascinates me is before Jeremiah ever spoke any of these words or anything had ever come to pass, Isaiah, who prophesied and worked prior, foretold of Babylon's destruction and even gave the reason as to why that God would judge and destroy them and bring them to nothing. And I think that's one of the most interesting things. You have this great kingdom, one that fascinates men. You see it in, in secular literature. They get tied up with what's revealed in Revelation. They even come into Isaiah 14 and suppose that reference to Lucifer, you know, and King of Babylon with Satan in the flesh and all these different ideas and thoughts. And you have titles like the book, Oh, Last Babylon. And they're so excited about it. But if they just come back to see the words of Isaiah and see that it all came to place, God's the one that raised up this great nation and then utterly destroyed it. And he said that he would do it way before any of it ever came to pass. And he fulfilled it, showing his sovereignty. But in chapter 14 of Isaiah, he begins by saying, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, speaking of their return from captivity. He says, we'll again choose Israel and we'll set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So they're coming from captivity where they're being oppressed. And then as they come back, we see this first element. There's going to be a people of sojourners that will join themselves to Israel. Wow, this is a, a great change of position. But further so, the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. All this by the mercy of God. Not because Israel is a great people, but because God is in control and is able to make them a great people or make them no people. God is the one that is all powerful. Now, as we come into verses 3 and following, we see this remnant that God allows is a taunt to Babylon, whom he had used to judge these people that belong to him. It says, verse 3, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Verse 
5, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, right? He has broken their power. They only have power because he allows them to have power. If you come down to verse 8 and following, you see that the world above and below will rejoice at the fall of Babylon. Right, The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you. When you come, it rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Verse 12. How you are falling from heaven. O Daystar, or O Lucifer, which just literally means Daystar, son of dawn. Right? You elevated yourself as though you were this bright and shining star. But oh, how that star has fallen. And it speaks of in verse 13, the things that were said in his heart. Right? I will ascend to heaven. The arrogance, the haughtiness, the pride. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. Verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Verse 19, we see that fulfilled in Daniel chapter 5. But you are cast out away from your grave. You know, the story of the handwriting on the wall. Verse 20, you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. And verse 22 and 23, making it very clear that this nation would become utterly destroyed. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah reveals before any of these things that Jeremiah would say or any of these things would come to pass, that God would judge Babylon and utterly destroy it in his time. According to his plan and his purposes, God is the one that's in charge. And if any one of us or any king of this world or anybody would think that they're in charge, then just like the children learned in their Bible class, they're foolish. Those who think that they are in charge are foolish. Now, as we carry into Daniel chapter 4, this is exactly where our children went in their Bible lesson. We will carry also. We see here that verse 17 is the key to this chapter and certainly the dream. So we'll look at it first, and then we'll go remind ourselves of the specifics of the dream. Verse 17 says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know. That the living may know, and this is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar, king of this great Babylon, is going to have to learn and does learn. That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will 
and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, Marcus Aurelius, we won't go into his leadership and specific decisions, but there was one thing that I liked. Upon the end of his reign over the Roman Empire, he spoke of him separate from the office and asked the question of his wife if he was worthy of the role. So he didn't allow himself to become puffed up as if he was the ruler over the entire world or the greatest empire, but yet just a man. I'm Marcus, and I have been given the opportunity to step into this role. And was I, did I live and, and did I work within that role? And was I worthy of that role? Right? And that's a difficult thing for us because our ego, our mind, our pride will take over as if it is us that would accomplish these different things. And as it is us that is able to go to and fro as we would please, make our own plans, and do as we would see fit. And we forget that we are fragile. We are very limited in this existence. And it is God that is all powerful and that will make our path, shorten our path, turn us this way or turn us that way according to his goodwill. And we see that providence in the kingdom of men. Now, we've come back with me to verse 4 of chapter 4. We see the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar, as he experiences this dream, becomes very afraid. You see, verse 5, I saw a dream that made me afraid. And of course, he called all the wise men of Babylon and the Chaldeans, and none of them could interpret it because God wouldn't allow them to interpret it. Right. But then he calls Daniel, and God allows Daniel to interpret it. And so verse 10 is where we see the interpretation, or not the interpretation at this point, but the actual dream itself. It says, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. But then, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar would become afraid. Because thus it was said from this holy one, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And then we come to verse 17, that key verse and the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar would need to learn but that all of us would need to learn that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And that's the point. So, of course, as I said, he tries out the wise people as he sees them, and, of course, they can't interpret it. And then he calls Daniel, and Daniel gives the interpretation. Now, we know the part about the tree, and so then he comes, verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew 
and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. It's you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. But come to verse 24. The interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the most high, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, right, and he gives him counsel, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. God is control. Repent and perhaps. Right? Perhaps. We have to say perhaps because God is in control. He will decide. He will do his good will. But then as we come to verse 28, we said all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. But notice 29, the timeline. Twelve months has passed. And in that time, it can be really easy for a human to forget those things or to suppose that, oh, well, you know, it was said, but it's not going to come to pass. And you can see upon what he was looking at. It says he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So you can imagine by what he says that he's looking out and he sees all the grandeur, the splendor, the things that he has supposed that he has created that he has built. Verse 30, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. God's word is about to come to pass. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now the story doesn't end there and that's of great comfort to all of us as we may stumble in our pride and grow haughty at times and may even fall into the foolishness of thinking that the success that I have is by my own abilities, my own intelligence, my own wit, my own doing. And I'm not wise enough to give credit to God. But we see that Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and in that time, that appointed time, reason was returned to him. And it says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. And then we see four things. He says, and his kingdom, so this comes the end of 34, coming into 35, his kingdom endures from generation to generation, 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. So it's, it's not that he doesn't care about man. It's just that in comparison to God, we're inconsequential. We're insignificant. God is the one that matters. He is everything. And we are but his servants, his creature. We are the clay. And so the first thing we have to do is examine and make sure that we have the proper mindset before our holy and just God. And then Nebuchadnezzar reveals, as he's learned, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. God is the one that possesses all power. And I mean, I can understand, think Nebuchadnezzar and all that success God allowing him to take those different nations. God giving him all of that wealth. The way that people would talk to him and, and revere him as being wise. All those things and how they could treat the mind and heart in such a way that you would suppose that you have this favor. And that you would look at yourself like some great person and forget the fragility of man. Forget how limited we are. I mean, even within the temperatures that we exist in, if it gets just a little bit too hot, we get extremely uncomfortable. And if we're out in the elements and we make a couple mistakes, we die because we're fragile. And just the opposite is true, too. It gets a little too cold. We get uncomfortable, make a couple mistakes in the elements. And like Jack London taught and to build a fire, we will die because we are fragile. But it's easy for us at times to forget the fragility of our lives, to forget our limitations as human beings and suppose that we are great. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this lesson the hard way. God is the one that possesses all power and he will do as he wills. And then thirdly, as Nebuchadnezzar relates, and none can stay his hand. Nobody could stand against God. He cannot be stopped. And then as he says, and who or say to him, what have you done? Which comes back to one of the themes of Job. Who is it or who among us is worthy to question God or deem that something that he has done or determined is wrong? We are the clay and he is the potter. But we see in verse 36, Nebuchadnezzar in his turn, in his repentance, in his humbling of himself, he says his reason returned to him and for the glory of his kingdom, his majesty and splendor returned to him. He says, my counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. But notice now who he praises and the lesson he puts on the end. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble and then finally we look at these things that we might do on this life and we look how we might destroy the pride in our own lives and consider that all the things that are before us that God is allowed to be good as we see in James chapter 1 verse 17 every good and perfect gift comes from the father that we might see it as coming from the grace of God. God has allowed us whatever favor, whatever blessings, even things as simple as a good meal before us, 
you think back to Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, he was given an office to search out all these different things. He could build the greatest vineyards, no matter how many resources that it took, how many men that it took to grow, how many years that he needed, and he would do such, but then come to understanding that a famine could come and destroy it in a season or shorter. It's vanity, right? He could accumulate all the wealth, build up great buildings, all these things, but then die and it be left to another. It's vanity, all vanities of vanities, right? But he said just to eat and drink, right? Be merry, enjoy the fruit of your labor. That that is where we should put our mind. And then, of course, as he comes to the conclusion of the entire book, that we should fear God and keep his commandments. But it, I think it all begins with just recognizing and living each day knowing I am the clay and not allowing my pride or my haughtiness to become or try to make me more than what I really am. I'm just clay. And I put my feet on the ground when I come out of the bed and I'm trying to be thankful and have an attitude that I'm going to serve God today. What ways will he use me? I don't know. But if I will just be humble and seek to serve him this day, then I can bear fruit not for myself, but for his kingdom. And there will be a reward, an inheritance that he has put for me in the life to come. And so much of our life, and especially as we continue to walk at sun up, sun down, it's just about waking up and getting that right perspective, getting the right attitude, and serve, serving God in that day. But as we see throughout the kingdoms of men, it's very easy for leaders and people of power and influence to become foolish and think that they're in control. Nebuchadnezzar teaches us the lesson, or God teaches us the lesson through Nebuchadnezzar. And it's up to us, though, to abide in this lesson and make sure that we are shining the light of Christ. And Christ, in all of his greatness, came as a simple servant, right? And just like the time that the disciples were arguing about greatness, he told them that they would just receive the little ones, right? These young children who have no social status, but if they would just receive them, then they received him. And if they received him, they received the Father. And that is the greatness that we should seek. Thank you for uh, your attention and, and thank you for this time that we try to go to the Bible class lessons of the children and reinforce the lessons that they're learning and hopefully spur on some discussions in the home and some more teaching and learning and growing up our young children to be disciples of Jesus Christ. If there be any among us that need to respond to the call of Jesus, knowing that he is the one that offers us mercy and grace that would allow us the salvation that can only come by our heavenly father that allows us to walk upon this earth and blesses us and takes care of us if we will only just humble ourselves before him. If anyone needs to respond to that call, then please come as we stand and sing. Why he